0: We're five weeks in the series, so I know I don't need to introduce it to you, so just real quickly, we've been exploring the possibility of living a different kind of life. It's the beginning of a year, and I always feel like there's a rhythm to life, and every time we begin a new year, there's this sense of new beginning. How can I be different? How can I be what I want to be? But in my life, sadly, too often, those ambitions uh, for a different kind of life kind of melt away by the time February rolls around. And so I find myself at the beginning of a new year saying, why am I still the same? What's, what's holding me down? What's holding me back? And so we, we're asking that question in a real serious way in 2016. It's not that we just want to have a beginning to a new year and think about new things. We, we just are asking the question, how can we live a different kind of life? Um, the series is, is all, it's called Takeoff, and I got the ideas I share with you because I was on a late-night flight, and the pilot just kept taxiing around. I asked Mary Allison, are we driving back to Wichita? I mean, and the humor of it was... Wouldn't it be ridiculous for a 737 to spend its lifespan taxing around instead of actually taking flight and doing what it was designed and destined to do? And I don't want my life to just be a life of taxing around. I want to catch that lift. I want to have, I want to, I want to, I want to experience what I was destined for. And, and so how am I going to do that? How am I going to find that life? We we've, we've been saying that The person to answer that question is the God-man, Jesus Christ, God in skin. And when he was on the earth, he talked about that. He actually brought a talk, and that talk is captured for us in the book of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus is basically saying, look, life doesn't have to be the way it is right now. Over and over, he was talking to a group of people that had been in a rules-based system. I mean, they had God's rules, but they had a whole bunch of people's rules piled on top of it, as religions always bring. And so he was talking to that group of people, and he was saying, look, you've always heard that it's like this, but I'm, I'm telling you it could be different. It could be like this. And so, like I said, we're in the fifth week of that. We first two weeks, we just talked about attitudes because Jesus did that. He said, if you want your life to be the takeoff life, then you've got to have these attitudes. And then Jonathan did talk about relationships. And then last week, Jesus talked to us about worry and we spent some time saying, okay, we can't go through life just cumbered with anxieties if we're going to live the takeoff life. Today's talk, really today is the first half of a two-week talk because I just, I've got what Jesus is going to talk about, i got to break up. Here's the weird thing about the message today. It is going to sound very functional, and at times it's going to be like, it feels more like a list, but here's the thing. Of all the things I could share with you about how to have a different kind of life, I'm not sure that anything is more important than what we're going to talk about today. So even though it's going to feel functional at times, I'm just going to beg you to, to give this attention because for many of us who are Christ followers, I mean, there was a moment when we invited Jesus Christ into our life, and yet we wonder, why am I not living that life that I want to live? Today's talk is going to give us the answer. I should say, I have known people, I have known Christ followers, let's just say this stuff happened in their life. I mean, it's not like they wore it on their sleeve, but it's like they just had this relationship with God. I had a relationship with God, but it wasn't like their relationship. I mean, and when they prayed, things happen. And it's like they have a relationship with God that's like, he's so close. I mean, I'm thinking about some people right here at New Spring. They just have this very special relationship with God. And here's the thing. When I've tried to ascertain why they have that life, I always get to the same answer every time. I don't know why I'm so slow to get it. It's always one thing. They pray. They pray. Not like I pray. Not short, I'm in trouble, desperation, oh, by the way, God, could you do this for me? Not prayer like that. And I'm not not saying that they pray like great lengthy periods of time. It's just that prayer is the priority for them. Prayer is what they do. It's not their last resort. It's their first resort. They pray. Well, one of those people who who was like that was Jesus. Jesus. And we're sort of like freaked out by Jesus praying because we know he's God. So it sounds kind of strange that one member of the Trinity talks to another member of the Trinity in prayer. But we know that for 33 years, Jesus lived the human life. I mean, he was God in skin. He came to our world and he ran the table for 33 years. And he lived the life for us that we can't live. And then he died the death on the cross to take the punishment that we should have had so that we can have the benefit of the life he lived and that he can take our punishment for us. And we understand that. But while he was on the earth for those 33 years, he prayed. And like the people I know, Jesus' prayer wasn't like the prayer of the people around him. I know because his disciples came to him one day. This is in Luke chapter 11. You know, and then you got to realize this. The disciples, they, they, they prayed. I mean, many, they grew up, many of them they would have prayed for three and a half hours a day, which has most of us beat by 210 minutes. And they prayed, but this is in Luke 11.1. One, one, after he finished praying, one of the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. You know what I find interesting about that? Jesus was an extraordinary communicator. We know that. I mean, there's that, there's that time that the little kid had the sack lunch, and he listened to Jesus all day, and he never got into the sack lunch. Listen, you can hold an 8-year-old's attention all day. You're a great communicator. I know he's a great communicator. But the disciple didn't come and say, Lord, teach us to speak or teach us to preach. I mean, Jesus had a charismatic magnetism around him. I mean, everywhere he walked, people wanted to be close to him. They wanted to touch him. They thronged and gathered around him. But they didn't say, Jesus, teach us how to, like, win friends and influence people. The one thing they wanted to know how to do more than anything else, they said, Lord, would you just teach us to pray? And again, like I say, these were guys that were used to praying I don't know who the number one-ranked golfer in the world is right now, but if, if, if you were out playing golf and, you know, you were thinking, wow, I feel really good today. It's going to be a great round, and then the marshal came up and said, I got a single, and I want to work him in, and then you wind up playing with the number one-ranked golfer in the world, and you play nine holes, most of us. You know what we would say? I don't know what I've been doing all these times, but it's not golf. <laughs> and that's what this disciple said. I don't know what I've been doing all these years, but it's in prayer. And so I said, Lord, teach us to pray. Before we go any further, let's pull over the side of the road and let's ask a question. Why is prayer so hard for us? Here's the thing. If I'm going to listen to somebody give talks about the various aspects of the Christian life, the first thing that's going to produce guilt in me is when a minister talks about prayer because it's one of my biggest issues. Knowing everything that I just told you, why is it that I struggle with prayer? Well, in the essence of full disclosure, I think there are a couple of things. Number one, prayer doesn't seem to be doing anything. In our Western way of thinking, you know, in our part of the world, it's like if you have a problem, you just roll up your sleeves and do something about it. You work harder. You bring in more people. You learn more. You take a pill. You go see, you go see the expert. You do whatever it does, takes to fix the problem. Prayer doesn't seem to be doing anything. I've actually made this statement before when I've reached the end of my options. I've actually said, I guess all I can do now is pray. Isn't that insane? It was the most I could ever do in the first place. But we just have that vibe about us to say, well, you know what? We don't say it out loud. It's just we, we show that we believe that by where prayer falls in our priority list. It isn't doing anything. But let me go to the elephant in the room. The real problem that we have with prayer is it's, and and my non theist friends have a lot of fun on this one. We don't seem to be talking to anybody. The person that we're talking to is not visible, and that person doesn't talk back to us. And so the question is is anybody there? Now, I know that it's it's part of our belief system. We would say, yes, somebody's there. But, you know, it's one thing to believe something is technically true. It's something to live as though it's true. I really think that even those of us who are Christ followers, we struggle to deal with the fact that there is somebody there. When I don't see that person, that person doesn't talk back to me. There's all this story in the books. There was a, a little town in West Texas there was a church there, but there was also like a roadhouse or a tavern, you know, where, you know, people got drunk and gambled and ladies of the night plotted their trade. So this church decided to have a prayer meeting and they prayed for God to burn this place down. Not the church, the tavern. And so they prayed, you know, they had this, oh God, please just burn this place down. A West Texas thunderstorm came up, lightning struck the place that night, it burned down to the ground. And the tavern owner sued the church for damages. And the church lawyered up, and they said, It's not our fault. It was not our prayer that caused the building to be destroyed. The case went to court. You know how West Texas is. Case went to court, and the judge at the beginning of the trial said, I don't know how this is going to shake out, but there are two facts that are unescapable. Number one, the tavern owner believes in prayer, and the church does not. (laughs) I'm just saying, sometimes we say we believe in prayer, but it is a challenge to believe that somebody is actually there. Well, I do believe. And as I said, my non-theist friends have fun with me. They just—they—they they don't use this terminology, but it doesn't matter. What they're trying to say to me is, Mark, the reason why you believe in prayer and that somebody's out there is that you're not sophisticated. If you were, you're superstitious. If you were not as superstitious and more sophisticated, you would know that nobody's there. But can I make a point to my non-theist friends that superstition in a closed system without information is naivete? For instance, if, if there had been a stage here 200 years ago and I'd sit on the stage and said, I can stand here and talk to somebody in Paris, 200 years ago, they would have thought I was crazy. You wouldn't think I'm crazy. I'll have to just take out my iPhone, and I can send them pictures of what's going on. I can send them a picture of the airplane in Paris right now. And you know that. But see, 200 years ago, we didn't know about the iPhone. Isn't it ridiculous to say, all that's true is what I can see or prove? What a ridiculously stupid thing to say. I mean, there's so much that we don't know about the spirit world. In fact, you and I are spirits. We are not bodies that have spirits, we are spirits that have bodies. There's so much we don't know about the spirit world. Anyway, if you're agnostic, I'm not ripping you. And uh, and you need to understand, I tend to be skeptical. I struggle with spiritual things. But here's the the thing, and, and I would say this to you, and you can do with this whatever you want to do. I have seen God answer prayer. And I'm not talking about good things that might happen within the normal course of events. I have seen God do not the improbable, not just the impossible. I have seen God do the inconceivable. I've seen it. It's too late to debate with me. I'll be glad to debate the point, but I've seen God do the inconceivable. And here's the thing. There was no natural possibility Of it coming true. Lord knows I would have gone to that if it had been possible. I have just seen God do. I want to say it one more time. Not just the improbable. Not just the impossible. I have seen God do the inconceivable. God is a power. This is what James chapter 5 verse 16 says. "The, The earnest or the sincere prayer of a righteous person. Listen to these two statements. Has great power. And produces wonderful results. Who is here today that you could, you could use great power? I mean, just the circumstances that you're dealing with, it calls for great power. I mean, just like this airplane, I mean, or a real airplane, it can't bring its own lift. You and I cannot live this life that we're talking about. We don't have the capacity within ourselves. We need a great power that is outside of us. And the Bible says one more time, the sincere prayer of a righteous person has great power, and then it produces wonderful results. Well, in any event, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to Jesus' talk. Right in the middle of his, this game-changing talk, Jesus gives us what we call the Lord's Prayer. Now, again, remember, Jesus is coaching people up on how to live the air, airborne life. And right in the middle, he says the Lord's Prayer. So what we're going to do today is we're, we're going to deconstruct the first half of the Lord's Prayer. Next week, There are three requests in the Lord's Prayer. There are three asks. Give us, forgive us, and rescue us. By the way, doesn't that cover just about everything? Give us, forgive us, and rescue us. Those are the three requests. But it's interesting to me that the first half of the Lord's Prayer has nothing to do with requests. It's getting us in position to pray. Hey, I've been on a lot of airliners. I've never had one take off from the gate. It's just not where the airliner takes off. There's a gate, there's an, air, there's an airport in the way. So what has to happen is the person in the tower, one of the people in the tower, has to get the airplane in position to take off. That's what the taxing I was experiencing last year was about. So you got to realize this. When, when you look at the Lord's Prayer, it is like Jesus saying, okay, the first part of the Lord's Prayer is getting yourself in position to receive the answer to prayer. So, that's all we're gonna look at today. We're gonna look at that getting in position. Here we go. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Notice that Jesus said, Pray like this. Or some of you will have a translation that says, Pray in this manner. Okay, for all of us who grew up in church, I wanna make a point that Jesus did not say, Pray these words. Because you see, the Lord's Prayer is not, I mean, there's nothing wrong with reciting the Lord's Prayer. But it's not a prayer to be recited. These are bullet points. These are, it's these are like an outline to keep us on the right track. Jesus is saying, Look, if you want to pray like me, if you want to pray in an effective way, then you got to understand there's a kind of thinking that goes with prayer. So every one of the phrases of the Lord's Prayer is going to keep us in position in order to receive what we need from God. So and again, like I said, nothing wrong with reciting the Lord's Prayer. That's perfectly cool. I think Jesus says, why are you giving me back bullet points? But in any event, I want you to look at the themes of the Lord's Prayer. We're going to call this early morning flight because this is a prayer to be prayed in the early morning. Here we go. First phrase, our Father. What's involved in that? Well, you got to realize this. To us, praying to God as Father sounds normal, but before Jesus came along, it was not normal to address God as Father in prayers. He was seen as the father of the nation of Israel. But praying and calling God Father was something that Jesus brought with him from heaven. Remember, he is the only begotten son of God. I don't know what all that means. It's above my pay grade, just in the Bible. You and I are adopted children. You're an adopted daughter of God. I'm adopted son of God. So Jesus comes to our world, and He's God in skin for 33 years, but his relationship with his father goes back into eternity past. So when he comes to earth, he comes to earth calling him father. And so basically when he's praying, he's saying, look, I call him father. This is how we do it in the family. You can call him father too. We say something cool. Um, as I always tell you, the, the Bible's translated from Hebrew, Greek, and a little bit of Aramaic. And so consequently, translators had to get whatever the original languages were into English. Every once in a while, the translators, have they don't only really have a hard time translating a word. It kind of freaks them out. It's, let, me, let me show you an example. This is in Mark chapter 14, verse 36. Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane right before his crucifixion. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. That word, Abba, (laughs) translation did not want to touch that. It's an Aramaic word. It's a word of tender affection of a child to its parent. If they had brought it over into English correctly, they would have had to have used the word daddy or papa. And so the translators didn't want to do that. I mean, they're talking about Father God, and so consequently it's like, well, you know what? Instead of translating we'll just transliterate. We'll just bring it over from Aramaic and bring it over as it is. No, we're not really surprised that it's such a, an intense moment in Jesus' life when he's praying in Gethsemane and he's wrestling for the destiny of the world. We're not surprised that at that intense moment, Jesus might slip and refer back to God the way he referred to him in heaven and use the word daddy or papa. But check this out. In Galatians chapter four, verse six. The Bible says, and because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts prompting us to call out, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. One more time, the translators didn't want anything to do with that word, and they just brought it over. But what I love about this is the first time Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and I understand he's totally stressed out. He uses the word daddy or papa in Galatians chapter 4, the Bible says, hey, we've been adopted children. Jesus brought this with, from, from heaven to us, and he's saying, it's okay. I call him daddy. I call him papa. You can call him that too. You think of the word Abba? It, it's more of a sound than a word, isn't it? Papa is very close to that. It's, it's one of the earliest sounds that a child makes. My two-year-old granddaughter, Audrey, calls me papa. Every once in a while, her mom or Mary Alice is walking with her through the concourse and we have those monitors, you know, television monitors up everywhere and Audrey will look up and say, Papa, Papa, I love that, you know? She can have anything she wants when I hear her say Papa. (laughs) You know. Now listen, what's all this about? Why is it important for us as we're saying the Lord's Prayer just to stop and realize that? Jesus is saying, look, before you go any further, realize you're not talking to some deity that you have to appease, You're not talking to some despot that you have to negotiate with. You're talking to your father. You're talking to your daddy. You realize when you go in and talk to the father, it's not like you walk in as a stranger. You walk in as a child. Wow, that already begins to revolutionize our praying. Now, the moment I say this, I'm a little sensitive because I understand that some of you didn't have good fathers. If you were to use an adjective to describe your dad, you might say, my dad was an absentee dad, or my dad was a distant father, or unfortunately, some of you might say, my father was an abusive father. But even if you're here like me, and your dad was the greatest guy in the world, we still have a hard time processing God as our Father, because God is a better father than even the best of human fathers. You remember last week we, we saw this first? The Bible says, "When you pray, don't babble on and on like people of other religions do, hum humda. That's not there. I just put that in there. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them. Look at this. For your father knows exactly what you need before you ask him. Well, if God knows what I need before I ask him, that means he knows what I need before I know what I need. And if he knows that about me, screw up that I am. He has to be a real student of me. And he's a real student of you. Our father. In heaven. This is one of the biggest phrases in the Lord's Prayer. Because, see, I mean, it's not like Jesus was saying, God doesn't know where He is, so just remind Him that He's in heaven. That's not what's there for. When does Jesus want us to pray, Our Father in heaven? This. I see everything from street level, I see everything from the earth level. When I pray about what I need, I see everything. In the terms of what I can see, but I'm looking from street level. Isn't it true sometimes that when you're on the top of a building or you're elevated that you can look down and you can see things that people can't see on the ground? And so Jesus wants us to understand that when we come to pray right up front, we need to say, Lord, I think I know what I need. I think I know what I'm here to ask for, but I just want to affirm from the very beginning that you have a perspective that I don't have. You're in heaven and you see what I can't see. This is going to get sensitive. Because many times God has not answered our prayers the way we felt he should. And we've actually begun to be heard at God. But never forget that God can see several things we can't see. He can see the future. God can see the circumstances that we can't see. And most of all, and this is one we don't like a lot, God sees things from the eternal perspective. We don't like the eternal perspective very much not unless we're getting ready to die, and then we're crazy about it, but we don't like the eternal perspective very much. See, the eternal perspective says, every once in a while, God will allow a situation in my life that will feel unpleasant, but in an eternity, it will have good ramifications. Well, I'm not, I don't want to wait for eternity, but we just, when we pray, we say, God, you're in heaven, and you see things from the eternal perspective, and that's not something I can gauge. Let me give you a story in the Bible real, real quickly, that will help us understand this. There was a king over Judah named Hezekiah. I think outside of David, he was the best king Judah had. He came to power as a very young man, and he brought in all kinds of great turnarounds. He led the nation to get rid of their idols. He led the nation to worship God. Hezekiah was an extraordinary king. And even though he had some bad things happen, he turned to God. And he was like one of those people we talked about. God just did dramatic things for him. But when he was 39, he got sick. And he didn't know if he was going to get well or not. And he prayed. And God sent the pastor, Isaiah, who's the guy that the book is named after. He sent Isaiah to see Hezekiah and say, Hezekiah, I got some bad news for you. You're going to die. You're not going to get well. And a few of you have read this story, and you know what happened next. Hezekiah flipped over in his bed, and he started crying, and he started praying. And he said, God, you remember how I have served you, and you're going to let me die now? I don't understand. And God stopped Isaiah and said, go back and tell Hezekiah, I have added 15 years to his life. Now, if you've ever heard that talked about in church, probably your minister stopped right there and said, wow, isn't this cool? He prayed, and God added 15 years to his life. But if you read the rest of the story, what you'll discover is that Hezekiah didn't do one good thing in those last 15 years. He had a real screw-up that caused the nation of Israel eventually to be in captivity to the Babylonians. And beyond that, he fathered a son in those 15 years who became the next king, who was so wicked that he actually led Judah into idolatrous worship that involved the people burning their children alive as sacrifices. Just saying. You know, the best thing that could have happened to Hezekiah at 39 was to let God take him on home to heaven with that scintillating record. Just saying. See, we don't like that eternal perspective very much. But when we pray our Father in heaven, we're saying, Father, you have a perspective that we don't have. Now, let's go a step further. May your name be kept holy. When we pray, God, may your name be kept holy, I mean, obviously, I don't like it when people take God's name in vain. Is it just me, or is entertainment taking God's name, Jesus' name specifically? It's like I can't watch a movie anymore without Jesus' name just being savaged. Sometimes with the worst kind of profanity. I'm like, why don't they take Muhammad's name in vain? Or Buddha's name? Why is it Jesus? I know the answer to that. We'll save it for another talk. But... What what, what God is just saying is, look, when you pray, you want to get your plane lined up. God is saying, we need to pray. God, may Your name be kept holy. Now, when I hear the word holy, I'm inclined to hear stain or see stained glass and hear organ music. Holy just means in a class by itself. Jesus is saying, look, when you pray, I know you got a lot of stuff going on in your life. You got work. You got business. You got family. You got friends. You got entertainment. Jesus is saying, but make sure that with all the stuff that you have going on in your life, that God is in a class by himself, separate and apart and above everything else. Not that God is just on your to-do list. So, may your name be kept holy. Next phrase, also one of the biggest. Your kingdom come. Well, this one is huge. It's kind of like that in heaven phrase, because when we pray your kingdom come, basically what we're saying is, God, I understand I'm not living in heaven right now that my life is never going to be heaven on earth. But you're basically saying, I do look forward to the time when your kingdom comes. We're in a political season right now, and i got to be honest with you, I appreciate anybody who would put themselves out there for all that scrutiny to run for office, but I don't see anybody I'm in love with. I would love for Jesus to, I would love for his kingdom to come, wouldn't you? Love that. This one and I'll be through. And again, remember, this is before we ever ask anything, Jesus is saying, get lined up. Put yourself in position where God can answer your prayer. Here's the big one: you will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Two things about this statement. The first one is you sort of position yourself in life. Do you realize that when our first parents, Adam and Eve, were on the earth, what they said was, our will be done on earth. Satan, before the world was ever made, Satan said, my will be done in heaven. But what you're doing is when you pray, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you're saying, I don't align with my first parents. I don't align with Satan. I want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a powerful statement. But here's the big thing. I don't know if you've ever realized this or not. But when you pray to God and you say "Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you are asking God to do miracles. See, a lot of times when we use the word miracle, a lot of people say, well, I I don't want to talk about that. I mean, I've actually had friends who would say, "I, I think that being a Christian will help you in life, and there's some good aspects to it, but I don't believe in that miracle stuff. Well, that's because we don't understand what miracles are. See, we, we think that miracles is some sort of bizarre thing happening. It's some sort of strange, unnatural, supernatural thing happening. But if you realize what miracles are, listen to me, please. Miracles are just the normalcy of heaven intersecting the normalcy of earth. Remember when Mary, when the angel showed up to tell Mary she was going to have the Christ child. Mary said, that's not possible, I'm... I'm a virgin. How can these things be? Do you remember what Gabriel said to her? He said, with God, nothing will be impossible. Basically, Gabriel is saying, look, I know where you come from. That's not possible. It's just not possible on the earth. But where I come from, things are different. Heaven has its normalcy. Earth has its normalcy. A miracle is just a contravening of norms. It's It's just God contravening a norm. It is the normalcy of heaven kissing the normalcy of earth. That's all a miracle is. I mean, for instance, it'd be a a miracle in heaven if somebody got sick. See, it's normal for people to get sick here, but it'd be abnormal in heaven. It'd be a miracle. It'd be the normalcy of earth meeting the normalcy of heaven. It'd be a miracle in heaven for somebody to die. People don't die in heaven. I mean, you know, there are different normals in different places. This isn't the best illustration of the world, but. It's not normal in Kansas for men to wear skirts. It's not. But I've been to a place where it's very normal for men to wear skirts. I did a preaching tour through Scotland. And men over there wear skirts, manly men. We don't do that in Kansas. It's normal in Scotland. It's not normal in Kansas. But I've seen a man in Kansas wear a skirt. Yeah, I've done funerals, and there's a bagpiper, and he wears a kilt. Really nice guy in Kansas in a skirt. The normalcy of Scotland has met the normalcy of Kansas. That's all a miracle is. It's just the normalcy of heaven meeting the normalcy of earth. And Jesus is saying, look, if you want things to happen in your life, You pray, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Would you bring heaven's normalcy to my life? The normalcy of earth says my marriage is not going to make it. But I don't want to live relegated to the normalcy of this world. The normalcy of earth says that my kids are always going to be in trouble but I don't want to live relegated to that. The normalcy of verse is I can't get well, but I don't want to live enslaved to that. I'm a child of God. You're God's daughter. You're God's son. You can call him Papa, and you can say, Father in heaven. Now, you can see what I can't see, so you may choose not to answer it the way I want to, But my Father in heaven, may may your name be glorified. When I want your kingdom to come, I realize there's never going to be heaven on earth. But I want your will to be done on earth in my life the way it is in heaven. When you get to that point, you now have got your plane positioned right on the runway for takeoff. And now you're ready to pray. Give us, forgive us, and rescue us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for helping us understand this today. But I realize that we, just, we still don't know all we need to know. And your Holy Spirit can teach us. I need this myself. So, Lord, please help us. Now, if there's anybody here who has yet to have a relationship with you, May that happen right now. Would you stay in prayer with me? If you're here today and you say, Mark, I'm not really sure I could really claim God as my Father. How do I do that? I've got such wonderful news. The Bible tells us that anybody can have a relationship with God who asks, asks for it. It's prayer. Isn't that weird? We're talking about prayer. And yet the Bible says that's how you have a relationship with God. Romans chapter 10 verse 13 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not a religion. It's not joining a church. It's not doing community service. It's just wanting to have a relationship with God and realizing that Jesus has paid the price for that relationship. Here's the deal. I'm going to pray a prayer. These aren't magic words, but these are words that call out to God. And if you want to join me, I'll pray these words real slowly so that you can decide whether you want to own them before you say them to God. The important thing is not the words. It's what you mean in your heart. You ready? Here we go. Dear God, I am a sinner, and I can't fix myself, but I believe you love me anyway. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins, and I believe he rose from the grave. I ask you to forgive me and to make me God's child. Thank you for forgiving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, you say, Mark, I pray I don't have any idea what happened to me. Well, I want to help you with that. I have a gift I want to give you. It's a packet. It's got a DVD in it and a book I wrote and a coupon for a new Bible. All you got to do is come back to guest services back in the lobby. There's also a little one back by the coffee shop. I know we're congested, but take the time. All you got to do is say, I pray with Mark. They won't hassle you or stalk you. They just want to give you this. Thanks for being here. We'll go to part two next weekend.